And so this really is a two-part message on the, the tongue. And uh, last Sunday we looked at uh, what is a weapon, and we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, which speaks about weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We, we live in a conflict, folks. There is a battle going on. Warfare, spiritual warfare. There's things happening behind the scenes that according to God's word, they're things that are not seen, but they are eternal. And we are wrestling, we're battling, not against flesh and blood. You know, your enemies are not really people. But we are battling against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And every day, folks, there's a battle raging behind the scenes that is playing out in your life. You realize that? We have an enemy, an adversary that is walking about seeking whom he may devour. And if you and I get passive about it, we cannot be pacifists when it comes to spiritual warfare. When it comes to understanding there's a battle going on or we will get swallowed up and be victims of the devil. We need to resist him, the Bible says. So two definitions of a weapon. Uh, the first one I stumbled on last week because I accidentally deleted it and therefore I could not find it. But I have it now. Uh, the first definition of a weapon is an instrument of any kind used in warfare or in combat to attack and overcome an enemy. Uh, back in the Bible days, uh, it was the sword, the main one. Today, we have all kinds of firearms. Um, but, but folks, I want to remind you that our tongue is really one of the most lethal weapons that you and I have. The second definition of the word weapon is any part of the body which is or may be used as a means of attack or defense, as a claw, horn, tusk, or the like, talking about beasts and birds. And I would tell you that in our, uh, the tongue should be added onto that. That our tongue can be a weapon. It can be a weapon against the devil, which it should be, and it can be a, a, a weapon uh, for the devil. And you and I need to take responsibility of our tongues. James chapter 3 uh, and verse 6 says, The tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of, of hell. That's strong terminology, isn't it? Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So we're going to talk about the tongue. Um, you know, sometimes even in a religious context... The tongue can be used as a weapon uh, in a very evil way. The religious leaders in Jesus' day used their tongues to condemn Jesus Christ. You remember that? And in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36, uh, or at 30, he, he said, How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. They were evil because their hearts were evil. And by the way, when, the, when James says... The tongue can no man tame. Our response should not be, well, if I can't tame the tongue, then what's the use? I might as well just say what I'm going to say. It's not the idea. It's that at the tongue, we don't control things at our tongue level because it's from the abundance of the heart 
that our tongue speaks. So it's really not a matter of, hey, you need to get your tongue right with God. No, you and I need to get our heart right with God so our tongue says the right things. That's the challenge. And that text, Matthew twelve thirty six, Jesus said, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account in the day thereof. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So we're going to talk about words today. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I ask your help as we open the scriptures and pray that the Spirit of God would equip us today. And as I share my heart on some things, I pray, Father, that uh, my words would not be a stumbling block, but they would be an exhortation to the church about how important our words are. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom always so that our words might accomplish the things that you want. Whether it be like Jeremiah, who needed to rebuke, reprove, and exhort. He literally needed to tear down before he could build up. And then, Father, that our words would also be there to build up. And so we ask your blessing today on the Scriptures. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. So we're going to talk about words. And... Um, you know, when I look at our congregation here, there's a lot of different words and languages that are represented. Our dear folks here are Chinese. Uh, we're not going to be talking about Chinese. They know Chinese, so that like opens up a whole, another whole realm. You know, I'm having a hard enough time just with English. Um, there's also uh, Spanish. Uh, we have these dear, dear family coming in the evening service from Ecuador, and they're just learning English. And I took two years of Spanish, which really is, is, was worthless, but I'm trying to relearn it, and uh, so I really want to learn, because I, I have some knowledge of Spanish, trying to learn that. Uh, we're not going to talk about Spanish today. Well, well, if you're Spanish, then this applies to you. We're not going to talk about Korean, and Dave knows a whole lot more Korean than I do. I know none. We're not going to talk about Amharic, with dear folks from Ethiopia, that, I said that right, didn't I tell Lala? Amaric. Uh, that's their language. Uh, we're not going to be, be speaking in crew or Basa. It took me a week in Liberia to learn one word in Basa. You ready for it? Mawain. See, I, I bet you for a minute you thought, my pastor's Liberian. Didn't you? I know, it was so bad. I see Moses like, no, he just be it. I know, you're, it was so funny because as I'm learning it, the Liberians were so patient with me. And they, and they had to be. And then every time I said it, just like I said it here, they always laughed. All the way up to the last day. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong. So you know what, right now, I'm just going to stick with English. Do you know that there is over 600,000 words in the English language? Uh, since English began... Over a, just over a thousand years ago, uh, over six hundred thousand words, uh, and you and I are going to be responsible for the words that we use. And, and here's what I want to focus on today. Um, and I hope I don't mean to offend anyone. I know we might have some, um, you know, pacifist or animal rights activists, but I hope you're not offended by this. But I took my children to a hunter safety course, and um, but by the way, no, no animals have been harmed because none of them have used it yet. But 
they taught about gun safety and firearms. And the more I've thought on it, the more I realized, as I've been thinking on this idea that our tongue is a weapon, that a lot of the things they taught in that class, they taught my kids about firearm safety, has incredible application to tongue safety. We're going to talk about tongue safety today. Because every one of you has a tongue. And as I said last week, is yours registered? Do you have a permit to carry? <laughs> because you're carrying a tongue. And, uh, but, and I want you to get that understanding. So let's just jump right in. I'm going to share a few things. And, and we're going to, it, James chapter 3 is a very important text for us as it talks about the destruction. So four points, a couple of them we're going to just hit briefly. And then I want to close by sharing um, how important words are in light of the very first verse of James chapter 3. But here's, here's, so here are some of the points that were brought out in that safety course that I went with, my, with some of my kids. Number one, always keep the muzzle of a gun pointed in a safe direction. And I'm just looking at the, a manual here. I'm going to read some of the things and then make the application to that weapon that you have. Always keep the muzzle pointed in a safe direction. This is the most basic safety rule. If everyone handled a firearm so carefully that the muzzle never pointed at something they didn't intend to shoot, there would be virtually no firearms accidents. It's as simple as that, and it's up to you. Now, I would say then, if everyone handled their tongue so carefully that their words never aimed at hurting anyone, then we wouldn't have any problem. There's an application there. Psalm 141 and verse 3 says this. It goes back to the idea here in James where he says, the tongue can no man tame. He's not saying that we shouldn't accept responsibility for what comes out of our mouth. And sometimes Christians will do that. I just need to get something off my chest. You know? Or I just had to vent here. Or I just I had to, you know, I had to say it. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't mean you and I are not responsible for everything that comes out of our mouth. Listen to what David said in Psalm 141. He was praying to God, and he said, Set a watch, O Lord, over my mouth. And the word watch from the Hebrew has the idea of, of a guard. Set a watch uh, over, set a guard over my mouth, and then a watch over the door of my lips. And the, the second word also has the idea of, a, of a, a, a watchman. So God is telling you, it's interesting because God is saying, it's like we need to have a sentry, a guard, posted in front of our mouths to watch everything that comes out. It's, in other words, we're saying, Lord, would you please keep an eye on what comes out of my mouth? It's good prayer. How many of you have a ring doorbell camera anybody of you i do it's okay it's pretty neat it's pretty pretty amazing that we can see you know who's knocking at our front door who leaves our front door it's almost like you and i need a ring doorbell camera right in front of our mouth to see everything that goes out I mean, we need to be so careful with what comes out of our mouth and we need, that's why the Bible says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But swift to hear, slow to speak. Number two in this list, and we're going to go over the first few very quickly. 
firearms should be unloaded when not actually in use. And I would say the tongue should be unloaded until it's ready to be used thoughtfully. I want you to think about that. The tongue should be unloaded uh, until it's ready to be used thoughtfully. I quoted James 1.19, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. It's, like, it's almost like, all right, Lord, I need to unload my mouth, take these words out, until I'm ready to speak something that's thought through. In fact, you know, the Bible says in Proverbs 17.28, Even a fool, when he holds his peace, is counted wise. You know, every time you go into a new group, a new, new setting, and you don't say anything, for all that those people know, you are incredibly smart. Until we open our mouths. And then, and then it's settled what comes out, right? Even a fool, when he holds his peace, even a fool, when his mouth is unloaded, counts, count, is counted as wise. May that be us. There's a saying that I strongly disagree with but I understand the sentiment of it, so I, I, I'm not a knee-jerk reactor as much as I used to be. I find the older I get. Um, but here's the saying that I disagree with. And again, I understand the sentiment. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. Now you might say, oh, I like that. Now wait a minute. Preaching the gospel requires using words. It really does. Now, I, I do agree, and that's what I think the sentiment of that is, uh, when it comes to ministry, ministry doesn't always require words to be used. Now, think about that. And that, there's a difference. If you're going to preach the gospel, and, and I understand what that sentiment is, the Bible says, our, um, let your conversation, that's an old English word for your lifestyle, let your conversation be that which becometh of the gospel. So we need to have a life, our lifestyle and our conduct needs to be befitting or consistent with the gospel. But as con- you can be 100% consistent, 100% loving, but if you don't open your mouth and share the gospel, the gospel is not being shared. There's a big difference. So, but ministry can take place with not one word said. And we have to realize that sometimes just your presence is required. Just just a show of support. Last year I was talking to Brother Skip. And by the way, let me make this is a caveat. Because, uh, you know, whenever you mention someone, you know, the Bible says, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth. So I'm about to praise someone, but the Bible says I'm allowed to. And you know what I love about our congregation? There's so many people constantly that are doing things behind the scenes. And, and, you know, the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. And there are so many people that really get mad at me for acknowledging. And it's a precious because they don't want attention. And that's the way it should be. But to you that get mad at me, the Bible says, let another man praise thee. So one of our deacons, James Gideo visited Skip when he was in the hospital. And didn't, I remember Skip saying he, he really didn't say much. He just sat with me. And he didn't need to say anything. And, and Skip said, 
He said, I will never forget that. That meant so much to me. Brother James, I think he's back there. I know, he's probably glad he's not in here. Uh, But what a blessing. What a blessing. I wouldn't have known that. I love when people tattle on other people who do good deeds. I love that. And it's been happening a lot lately. Things I didn't know about that that person probably wouldn't want me to know about. But I really do need to know about those things. The blessings, you know. Remember, let another man praise it. We ought not to go around tooting our own horn. But the Bible says, let other people toot your horn. Now, you shouldn't go up and say, hey, would you toot my horn? This, you know, we shouldn't do that. But, but that should be our spirit. So, again, firearms should be unloaded. We need to unload this mouth. Not constantly be firing things all the time. Which can be a challenge. Number three, be sure of your target and what's beyond it. Listen to what the manual said here. No one can call a shot back. Once a gun fires, you have given up all control over where the shot will go or what it will strike. Now look at the application there. No one can call a word back. Once our mouth fires, we've given up all control over where the shot will go or who it will strike. That's why we need to be swift to hear and slow to speak. You ever said something in a knee-jerk reaction? You were really upset and you just let it fly? And then once it left your mouth, maybe you could see it flying and you're like, no, I've done that before. That's the danger of preaching. Preaching, you get up and you just talk. You know, the Bible says, in the multitude of words, there wanteth, that's an old English word for lacks, in the multitude of words, there doesn't lack any sin. In other words, the more we talk, the more danger we get into. Man, that's like a death knell to the preacher because we talk all the time. And by the way, we're going to go back to that in a few minutes. James chapter 3 and verse 1 addresses that. So again, be sure of your target. The Bible says twice in Proverbs, Proverbs 18.8, and then again in Proverbs 26.22, the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. You ever been hurt by gossip? Someone slandered you and it got back to you. It's painful, is it not? The, the words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Remember that quote last week? I won't repeat it again. Uh, words are incredibly powerful. I forget the from Tim Challies, I think. Great quote about the power of words to, for both good and bad. Now the last point where I want to park for a few minutes. Last Last point here was, use correct ammunition. Makes sense, doesn't it? The the manual says you must assume the serious responsibility of using only the correct ammunition for your firearm. Read and heed all warnings, including those that appear in the gun's instructions manual or in the ammunition box. Uh, Well, just like we have to assume serious responsibility for uh, ammunition, you and I need to assume serious responsibility for only using the correct words. We need to care about what we fire out. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good to the use of edifying. Colossians 4.6 Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. 
See, we've got we to choose. We've got to take responsibility for our words. Really own them. And when we make a mistake, when we speak impulsively, uh, we need to take responsibility and apologize for that. I want you to look at James chapter 3 and verse 1. Because in light of this fact, because uh, in fact that the, um, one of the commentaries I read gave the, under the section of James chapter 3 and following, um, it talked about that this whole text is about um, the wrong use of words. I forget how he worded it. And that's what James is talking about. But notice what he starts out. He starts out talking about our tongues with this statement. James chapter 3 and verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So was he talking about like bosses? Slave owners? Be not many masters. The Greek word that is translated masters in James chapter 3 and verse 1 is only used four times in the New Testament. And the other three times, the King James translators translate it teachers. For example, Acts 13.1, it says prophets and teachers. Same word. 1 Corinthians 12.29, are all teachers? Same word. And then Hebrews 5.12, when for the time you ought to be teachers... See, this word has changed meaning over the years since 1611 when it, was, when it was written. And I want to read from a commentator from 1877. Really from the same source that gave us the King James Version. This, this guy's name is... Um, um, I wrote it down and now I don't have it. Whatever his name is, here's what he said. Uh, as far as, again, he's quoting now um, James chapter 3, Be not many masters... He says, the English word master, though perhaps conveying the idea of a schoolmaster in the 16th century, and therefore used in all the versions from Wycliffe to Tyndale onward, is now, he's talking 1877, is now far too general in its meaning. What James warns his brethren against is each man setting himself up to be a teacher. In this he echoes our Lord's command of Matthew 23, 8-10, be, you know, let, don't, don't be, the idea is don't let any man, you know, don't be called rabbi. The idea is let there not be many teachers. He says the sages uh, in this Christian, in the Christian churches, in the Jewish, there was the peril of a self-appointed rabbiship. The sages of Israel had given the same caution as in the maxim, love the work, but strive not after the honor of a teacher. So this word, when it was written in 1611, when it was translated, the idea is, be not many teachers. In fact, my footnote has a, um, has a really good clarification where it says, be not many masters. The idea is, teachers, especially of the Bible. And that's what he's saying. He's saying there shouldn't be a lot of teachers. And, and as, as uh, this, this, um, this commentator said, uh, the idea is is those who set them set themselves up to be teachers. Uh, not everybody should be clamoring to be a teacher because with being a teacher, especially of God's word, comes greater condemnation, greater scrutiny, 
and well it should. Being a teacher, standing before others, representing God, is very serious and, and comes under greater scrutiny. And so in light of that, I want you to turn to Hebrews 13. I want to share with you just a little personal experience and a, from a pastor's heart. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. And the context is talking about those who are over you in the Lord, who have spoken unto you the word of, of God, mentioned earlier in this text. And in verse 17, he says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. And here's the reason. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And now listen to this statement, this comment about this text. He says, Be obedient and yielding to them who are your spiritual leaders, that they may do this, that is, they may watch for your souls with joy and not sighing. That's the idea of grief. That it would be grievous. That They're sighing. For this would be unprofitable for you. If ye so live that they must watch over you with grief, this will both weaken their hands and bring on you the divine displeasure. No words could more powerfully present to members of the church the motives for obedience to their spiritual guides and to these guides themselves the ideal of their work in life as men who are keeping watch for their souls, either with rejoicing or with mourning or sighing. And as a pastor, for years, I can relate to that. And that is a serious... I'm so conscious that in some way I am watching for your souls. And so, first of all, I better get my theology right. I better get my doctrine right in properly interpreting the Scriptures. But I also take it very personal when someone under my spiritual care is being influenced by someone that I do not believe is a a sound teacher. And I am the one that's watching for their souls. And I couldn't have said it better when this guy says, um, if if you, speaking to to church people, if you live, that they, uh, they must watch over you with grief, this will both weaken their hands and bring on you the divine displeasure. You know, so, watching over souls can be such a blessing. And then it can be such a grief, such a sighing. And so I want to share with you how important words are. There have been two times in the last three decades, only two times where I seriously considered stepping down and not pastoring. And both of them have to do with words that were spoken. Not to me, but to my family. They were words, and I'm only going to share one with you uh, because of the significance. And this one I'm going to share, it was only one word. <laughs> wow, how bad can one word be? Uh, but it, and it wasn't really so much the word, but it was uh, how it was weaponized against one of my family members. And I want to tell you something. Um, you know, when you pastor a church, when, when the environment of a church becomes toxic to your family, it's time to leave. And I seriously 
Those two times. One of them was uh, not so much the word. It's actually a word that it's a word that is so misunderstood. Um, and it's found in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. Let me read this to you. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions, quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So I want to share a, a testimony about my precious wife who, uh, when we first married, she was not a social butterfly. She was really uncomfortable around people. Me, I was the opposite. I loved, my, I, I, I take after my dad. Anyone that knows my dad, my dad is Mr. Jolly, happy-go-lucky. Uh, he's your friend as soon as you meet him. My dad's awesome. Uh, he really is. I don't know anyone that doesn't like my dad, really. He's just so you know, so warm and friendly. And, and I, I think I get that from him. Uh, and so when we first got married, and, you know, I consider going into the ministry, I wasn't going to have any problem with people. But my wife was like, oh, no, this is, she was going to do it because she, you know, she, God was leading and calling me. And she really struggled in those initial years. Uh, just feeling comfortable with people, you know. And to see her over the years, God has transformed her. So now, she's the social butterfly, and I'm the opposite. Oh, no, people, you know, it's amazing. I, you know, I've, I remember early on when she really wrestled with it, she would invite to have people over from the church, and people didn't realize this is huge. Because this would create so much anxiety. Now, some of you may be able to relate to that. I certainly cannot. Anxiety? People? And she really, and God blessed her so she overcame it immaculately. And so several years ago, one Sunday, I remember because of the day and the word, I remember that I was marveling over the effervescence of my wife. I remember standing back because she was, you know, she had just had a cup of coffee. That might have helped. And she was going around um, just greeting everyone with a warm, happy, you know, just greeting everyone. And I remember looking back that day and thinking, wow, God has transformed her. And I remember thinking how wonderful it was. You see, that day was Resurrection Sunday. And she was going around, and, and but don't react. She was going around saying to everyone with great bubbliness, Happy Easter. Now, there is a teacher out there that over the years has influenced several people, people I love. They've influenced in our church in the wrong way. And, uh, and I love these folks dearly. And this one person that I'm talking about, um, so the teacher, and I'm going to mention his name, it's Peter Ruckman. Now, I, I have a problem with this guy. I really do. Um, I'm so anti-Peter Ruckman that I don't even like to go to Pensacola, Florida. Yeah, that's where he's from. Um, but he read a book of a guy who read a book. And, and I'm really, as far as I can trace it, it goes back to a book written in 1930 about our authorized Bible vindicated, written by Benjamin Wilkinson, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, he didn't put this in his book. But this book was influenced, influenced a guy named J.J. Ray, who then wrote a book 
who Peter Ruckman read, and then he took this thing about the King James Version and made it toxic. And he, he became very contentious. And he actually, uh, in fact, I, there's a book that was edited by um, David Otis Fuller that I read three times. And so I was influenced. I did not realize it, but David Otis Fuller uh, quoted often from his pulpit, Wealthy Street Baptist Church, I believe it is, quoted with great esteem Peter Ruckman. But you won't see that in the book. And I read that three, book three times, Which Bible? And now I'm reading Benjamin Wilkinson's book, and I see. And, and here's what you've got to be careful of. Be careful of people that don't quote direct sources. Anyway, so here's the, here's the bottom line. Peter Ruckman got himself into a jam when he elevated the King James Version above the original languages. Now, if you read the preface to the King James Version, in fact, I wish that it was still published with the King James Version because it would have corrected a lot of false teaching over the years if people understood the philosophy of the translators. They shared their strengths and their weaknesses with this translation that is now not even seen as a translation. It's now seen as, and here's where Peter Ruckman got into a, into a corner. Because he defended every single word of the King James Version, which they themselves did not, somebody challenged him about Easter. This word in Hebrews, or excuse me, Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. And if you don't know the history of the English language or of the English Bible, and this is what happens, he's not going to understand why the word Easter is in there. And I want to share with you in a minute because there's a teaching out there from Peter Ruckman when somebody said, wait a minute, the word Easter is a translation of the word Paschal or Pascha, and that in fact, William Tyndale, when he translated the Old Testament, he used the word, he used the, the Hebrew corollary for that and translated it Passover. He's the one that coined the term Passover. And he didn't put it, in fact, in the New Testament, 29 times this word Pascha is, was found in the New Testament, is found in the New Testament. And he translated every, all 29 times as either East, uh, Passover, or excuse me, Easter, Easter lamb, and Easter fest. And there's a reason for that. Because in 1611, the word Easter meant, let me give you the definition of Easter in 1611. And this is from, by the way, this is from the um, Oxford English Dictionary, which is defined as the principal historical dictionary of the English language. When the first printing was done in, I think, 1989, it was over 20 volumes, like this thick each one. You see, this, this dictionary, and they're, they're redoing it now, and there's, it's, it would just be so massive, they're not going to make books of it, it's just, gonna be, it's just available online. It's so massive. But it traces all 600,000 plus English words and how they've changed over the years. So it, it'll tell you, what did this idea of Easter mean in 1611? Here's the first definition, and this is what the King James translators understood this word to mean. Uh, number one, de of definition of Easter. The most important and oldest of the festivals of the Christian church 
commemorating the resurrection of Christ and observed annually on the Sunday which follows the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Like, keep that in mind if you ever want to remember. When's, when's Easter again? Well, it's easy. It's the first full moon after, after the vernal equinox. Huh? But that's the idea. Again, what is it? It is the most important and oldest of festivals of the Christian church. So, when William Tyndale was translating into English, which was a new language then, the word Pascha referred to the Jewish Passover every time. And then, as you look at how it was translated in, in the Geneva Bible, in, in um, Wycliffe and Coverdale, and then the Bishop's Bible, you see that they began to change. All those times where the word Easter was in there, they began to translate it as Passover. And when the last issue, when the, when the translators, 50 plus translators, submitted their final drafts to the editing board, which was like four of the chief translators of King James Version, the, a man that's identified as the chief translator, which would probably be Richard Bancroft. What was submitted was every time that word Pascha was changed from Easter to Passover, because that's, that's, the, that's the translation of that word. And that's what they submitted. And Richard Bancroft, in keeping with the king, king's commandments, he had a list of commandments, not to change the old words, he left that one there as a tribute to William Tyndale and all those who understood Easter in that passage, just like all the others where Pascha is, is referring to the Easter lamb. Now that's a long explanation. But because Peter Ruckman was put in a corner, he came out with the statement because he thought it was foolish. What are you going into the Greek for? He said the English corrects the Greek. That was a new doctrine, folks. That was a new doctrine. And because of that now, all kinds of people are jumping down people's throats if you say Happy Easter. Because they're, they're defending the King James translator saying, oh no, no, that, that one definition, that one translation of Pascha is referring to the pagan holiday. No, it's not. Do not apologize for saying Happy Easter. I know the roots of Easter long ago, just like the origins of Christmas have some pagan roots. But by the way, remember what the Bible says, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. But I submit to you that Easter, in fact, I, I shared this in, I've done several videos on our, our translation from the preface. And um, I share the story that years ago, uh, for decades, folks, I defended Easter and I handed out a, a, a little pamphlet. And I say this in the video. And a man in our church, God bless him. I wasn't, I wasn't saying this at the time. By the way, I'm referring to Mr. Bertolette. Some of you remember Mr. Bertolette? He came to me with this thing. He said, Pastor, I disagree with this. What? How you disagree? And, and he just, he shared, you know, this is not right. And he showed me. And, that, and you know what? I praise God for people that disagree with me. Remember the, remember the uh, Bereans who searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so? Folks, you and I need to be, we need to be skeptical and, and have people prove things. And so I began a, a long process and came to realize, I, I learned, I, I in, in 
Golf Myself and William Tyndale, The History of the English Bible, which is important. Very, it, You will love the King James Version more when you understand its proper history. But folks, don't condemn people for saying Happy Easter. They're not uh, magnifying a pagan holiday. They're understanding the history of that word in the English language and what it meant. And it has always been about in fact, think about it. Jesus is the Easter lamb, the Passover lamb. That's what it's saying. How wonderful that is. So that day, I'm sitting there marveling. I'll never forget that back there. My wife's going around effervescent. That's my new word for the last couple of years. She was effervescent. And she was just wishing everyone, you know, happy Easter. And, and I just, I marveled. I'm like sitting there. Almost my jaw dropped. Wow! She used to be the recluse, and now she's like the bubbly person, and, and I'm now the recluse. Get away from me. No, I'm, I don't think I'm that bad. But as she's doing that, then, then I caught wind of what happened. And she wished a man that I love and I've been praying for for years regarding the influence of this man that I mentioned. And I thought I was making some progress, and he jumped down her throat. And I just, I, it's, he condemned her because she was magnifying a pagan holiday. Mm. And I'll tell you why that meant so much to me. Because what's the Bible say? Uh, that that um, Hebrews 13, 7, They watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. The word grief has to do with sighing. And I, I, I've been so grieved over the years, with it, because we've had several men in our church, and even I was influenced, I told you, without realizing it, but we had several men that were definitely embracing the, the doctrine of this man, that I love these, these men. And I prayed for, for some decades for these men. And that day, it was kind of like, first of all, you're sitting there condemning my wife when I'm sitting there at the very same moment, marveling over God's grace. And and that in another time, not because of words that were aimed at me, but my family was the closest I ever came to saying, you know what, I'm not putting my family in harm's way. And and if pastoring a church becomes unhealthy for my family, then it's time for me to leave. Uh, and then I thought of all of you. You know, the ones that respond to my ministry. The ones that esteem the scriptures, that... that not that you just believe everything I say. I would not want that. I don't mind the Mr. Bertolette's challenging me about a thing or two. I may not be happy at the moment. You know, I wasn't bubbling over. Oh, thank you, Mr. Bertolette. You know, but I appreciate that. That spirit. Uh, and I appreciate when uh, you allow me to be your teacher. With discretion. But you'll hear me out. You'll hear why I don't embrace the teachings of Peter Ruckman and why I think they're dangerous and other things. So words, words. You know, um, when you respond to my preaching, it makes my job easier. Uh, when you respond to false teachers and get wowed by them, it's grievous. It is grievous. Um, but what a blessing it is. Huh? Let's keep this in mind as I close. I know I've taken a few extra minutes. You'll get extra credit for that. Okay? Keep in mind. 
Um, but but once you keep in mind that the written word, the purpose of the written word is direct us to the living word, Jesus Christ. It's him we need to fall in love with. And when his word directs us to Jesus Christ so that we have a deeper relationship and a deeper love for him, then you and I are on track. But when our supposed zeal for the word of God leads us against everything that Jesus Christ stands for, then you and I are in trouble. May God help us remember the written word is to direct us to worship the living word. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I, I pray, um, you know I love people and, and uh, some people are enticed with people that I don't think are worth um, being enamored by. Uh, and, and Lord, it, it's not a problem until um, it begins to affect my ability to be someone's pastor. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me. Thank you for the things you've taught me. And thank you, Lord, for the things that, that I certainly was not perfect and I've had to grow and learn things. And um, thank you, Lord, for those that challenge uh, has, have, have lovingly challenged uh, things that I may have embraced without knowing things. And Father, I just pray that you would help us all to take our tongues seriously, that realize that we are carrying what could be a lethal weapon, which is okay if it is used against the devil and his ways. But Father, when our words are used not to build, not to preach the gospel, but to tear down people, if our words are used uh, not to edify God's people, but to sow discord, if our words are used to slander others instead of building up, edifying, and exhorting, uh, Lord, that's when it's wrong. So please help us. Help us to not be evil in our hearts so that whatever comes out, whatever pours out of our heart would bring glory and honor to you. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand. And uh, close, take your hymn books out.